0: So we got through a long letter, the letter to the Ephesians, which we've been working through most of the summer, and now we've switched on to a new letter, uh, the letter of James. And so I'll be looking at this over the next few weeks. So today what I'd like to do is to tell you a little bit about the the letter of James, what it's about, a general overview, and then to uh, get into the weeds here a little bit about what the specific passage here in James is really all about. And so as we begin, to share with you a little bit of background information that could be helpful and helping you understand what James is. First of all, uh, who wrote it? Well, you may not be surprised, maybe a guy named James. This is uh, uh, not entirely clear, however, but why we call it the letter to uh, to James is, uh, it says right at the very beginning, which we didn't read today, but uh, I'll share with you. Uh, The letter begins this way, James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ to the twelve tribes in the dispersion, greetings. Um, over the years, the church has come to believe, and most scholars believe, that the James they're talking about is probably James, the brother of Jesus. Uh, we know that he had an important position in the early church in Jerusalem, and he was the leader of a Jewish uh, uh, and Christian uh, congregation or group of Christians. So these were Christians who were Jews, but converted to Christian faith and came to believe that Jesus was the Messiah. Uh, That also helps us understand a little bit, if that's the case, uh, about what the letter's uh, kind of tone is about. Uh, As I just read, it's uh, James to the um, uh, 12 tribes and the dispersion. Those of you who know a bit about uh, Israel's history will know that there are 12 tribes that make up Israel, Uh, and so the dispersion is a term that talks about how um, the Jews are spread out throughout the globe, Uh, just as it is today. Um, from uh, very early times, many Jewish people moved or are driven away because of persecution, and so they've settled in different parts of the world. And so James seems to be writing a letter to Jewish Christians. Another thing that gives us a hint is that this, although we say James in uh, Greek, it's actually Jacobus. Uh, and I don't know why it worked out in English. Maybe somebody can figure this out, why the word James uh, in English is actually derived from the word Jacob. But you may remember that Jacob is the father of 12 sons who go on to become the leaders of the different 12 tribes. So Judah and Simeon and all the sons that he had. So these are indications that this is a Jewish person who's writing to other Jewish people. And they, what they have in common is not only their Jewishness, but their belief in Jesus. Here's another thing that's interesting about this book. Um, we are a Lutheran church, and so you may have heard that Luther had a very low opinion of this book. He called it an epistle of straw. And uh, that was about 500 years ago he wrote that. Uh, And uh, when he was talking about it, part of the reason he said he didn't like it was because uh, you may know a bit about Martin Luther's life. He was a monk, a person who was very fastidious and and worked very hard to try and please God. And he found in reading, particularly uh, St. Paul's letter to the Romans and his letter to Galatians, a new freedom. The idea that we're saved by grace and not by works is something that really was liberating for him. And what he meant by that is to say... Our salvation, our hope of resurrection, our hope of God's love, comes because of God's free gift of his love, his free gift of his Son. And what's responsible for us to do is simply to accept it. It's not that I have to do a certain number of prayers or a certain number of works. And so he found that so liberating. And then he reads James and comes and says, well, uh, gosh, this seems to be about an awful lot of rules I need to follow. And so he said, this is, in fact, not doing anything to help Christians. Instead, it's something that drags people down. Well, I'm preaching on it because I think Luther was wrong about it. It's understandable why he would think it. But in fact, James, I think, is an important corrective that we understand. We understand what faith is about. And what faith is about is more than simply uh, accepting something as true. What St. James here really speaks about is how faith is in fact something that is lived out and not just believed in your head. So when I want to speak to you today about the letter to James, it's starting to uh, look at two really important things about what James says here in this part of his letter that help illustrate that relationship between faith that we trust in and accept God's free gift, uh, but also how it is that faith is something that we act out on. And there's really two things that I think are really important that James is writing about in this section. And the two things are this. The first is when the world attacks you, but you don't attack back with the weapons of the world. And secondly, I think what he's speaking about here is that what faith is, is faith is something that's not passive, that is active. So let's start with the first point and what I'm trying to get at when I say um, that we don't attack uh, with the weapons of the world when the world attacks us. I've mentioned to you that I have a bit of a weakness for Twitter uh, and so I pay attention to Twitter and Twitter is a social media and what that means is that over the internet people will have uh, Twitter accounts and so uh, a Twitter account if you have Facebook it's sort of like Facebook on steroids right and that it's the idea is is that you instead of having long posts or pictures about you know what you did on the weekend you are limited to uh it used to be 140 characters and now it's I think 280 but you you have a very small kind of punchy thing that you you get to say and so you can say lots of nice things and of course Twitter's got a lot of very unnice things it's hard to have nuance when you've only got a few sentences to speak about it and I and I pay attention to Twitter largely because uh, it really is helpful to me that I follow people on Twitter who are good authors or journalists or Christians that I look up to or other important leaders. And many times the books that I read come because they're talking about a new book that they put out or uh, about something they're reading, and so it gives me a lot of enlightenment. But one of the things that I notice on Twitter, though, is how often that phrase keeps coming back to me. Beware of meeting your heroes. what that means is to say you can have a hero that you look up to and think they're great because of the great things they do in public and then you go and meet them and they turn out to be kind of a jerk right (laughs) the problem in Twitter is is that you can have people that you really look up to you read them because they're a great author or they have a lot of leadership and things and their public voice is well curated But what happens sometimes if you read a journalist who is a person who is really really uh, careful in what they write in the newspaper And then in Twitter, they're shooting off their random thoughts that come out of their head that may be factually incorrect and may be really mean. One of the things that Twitter does is that you're also allowed to be anonymous on Twitter. You don't have to identify yourself. And so you can be a journalist who writes a story and somebody puts out some nasty thing and says, you're a moron and uh, what you write is full of crap. And then the person responds very often with, I'm going to double down on this and show you what a jerk you are. And so you get what's called sometimes a flame war, which is, Back and forth, uh, who is the most devastating in their insults and witty comeback? Well, what's most difficult is when you look and you see Christians who are on there, maybe Christian authors or professors or leaders. And sometimes, unfortunately, what happens is people can, uh, you know, in the, in the world, you know, criticize us and have uh, very wrong ideas about Christian faith, or they can be people who maybe say nasty things in the heat of the moment. And how often I read people uh, who sadly respond in the same way. You've been factually incorrect about Christian faith, and I'm going to tell you how stupid atheists are. i got to say myself that sometimes I, I, I read a tweet, and I think, I'm going to get back and say something, and I almost never do, because I know very well how tempting it is to go down that rabbit hole. You may, in real life, not on Twitter, find yourself doing the same thing when somebody is mean to you, uh, maybe in the church or maybe in your office place, and you think, well, I'm going to really be consumed with the idea of smashing them with some really witty comeback or even worse sometimes you turn to the coworker and say whisper amongst yourself." isn't that guy such a jerk? You undermine them, destroy their character as a way of getting them back to the way they treat you. Now I say all that because I want you to understand that this letter is a letter that uh, is situated in the early church when they're facing persecution that is deep, and profound, and lasting. And to imagine yourself in their shoes to be uh, the kind of people who as Jewish Christians have been waiting all their lives, have been taught all their lives, that the Messiah is coming. They've come to believe that Jesus is the Messiah, and so they come to worship Him, to follow Him, and then they find that the leaders that they had learned from in the synagogue, maybe the rabbis perhaps they'd learned the Old Testament law from, or the people who are religious leaders, or the kings like Herod, uh, who are king over Israel, instead of embracing this Messiah, reject Him and say, He's not our Messiah. And then these people find not only do they reject Jesus, uh, they also start persecuting the people in the church. We uh, heard uh, or we read in in the um, book of Acts at how very early in the church's life, Saint Stephen, for example, all he's doing is he's appointed as a deacon to feed widows and orphans. He basically runs a food kitchen in Jerusalem, and instead of being praised for this, he's dragged out and stoned to death in a public square for the blasphemy of believing Jesus is Lord. We find uh, Paul, although he writes the letter to the Ephesians and other letters, that's not how he started out. He's very frank at admitting that as a Jewish person who was very zealous for the law, he began his career as a persecutor of the church. He believed they were so off-base and so dangerous that what he needed to do was to use violence and slander to keep people from proclaiming Jesus as Lord. And so many of the people in the diaspora, or the people dispersed that James is speaking about, were probably people who are actually pushed there because of people like Paul persecuting them and making them run away. Here these people are doing what is right, feeding widows and orphans, trying to do what is right and good, and what are they getting in return is slander, hatred, and violence. James begins his letter right after he says who he is and who he's writing to. He says this in verse 2 of chapter 1. My brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of any kind, consider it nothing but joy, because you know the testing of your faith produces endurance. Let endurance have its full effect, so that you may be mature and complete, lacking in nothing. He begins, his very first words of instruction are, you are facing suffering. This is a letter that will help you understand what you are to do when that suffering comes. How tempting it was in the early church to be people who say, when fire comes at it, we fight with fire. Once we get to the passage we just read, starting in verse 17, I think that helps us understand what James is getting at when he says these words. He says this, Every generous act of giving, with every perfect gift, is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. In fulfillment of his own purpose, he gave us birth by the word of truth, so that we would become a kind of firstfruits, of his creatures. You must understand this, my beloved. Let everyone be quick to listen, slow to speak, slow to anger, for your anger does not produce God's righteousness. See what he's saying here? He's saying to them, every good and perfect gift comes from God, who is the Father of lights. It does not make sense for you, therefore, to use the weapons of darkness, when the very reason you are a Christian gathered here in the congregation is because of what the Father of lights has given to you. If you know something about the early church, you will know that the early church gathered not because of the tools of darkness. Think about Acts chapter 2, which was many weeks ago we read in the day of Pentecost, way back in May. What happens when these people come as pilgrims, Jewish pilgrims to Jerusalem to worship from the corners of the globe? God's Holy Spirit comes on the apostles and they preach. And why do people turn to Christ? Because their hearts are struck by the power of Peter's words, of God's grace and they repent and come to believe. And then we're told right after that uh, they're daily adding to their number and that the, the poor receive help from the rich because the rich feel their hearts are moved by the poverty of those around them and they give and they gather and they form a community of love and care for one another. That is why you have grown and that is why you are a Christian today, he says. You have come because, he says, he gave us birth, that is to say, God himself gave us birth, in verse 18, by the word of truth. You heard the gospel and the good news, and that is why you are here. So don't start using things like anger, hatred, and vile talk in the belief that these are things that are going to make you go forward. That's not how the church was born, that's not how the church grew, and that's not how the church will be preserved today. That's a really important thing for us to understand I think as modern people because of course we look around at the modern world And we see it is not only on Twitter and and places that we run into uh, at work and, and whatever that sometimes the Christian church is slandered I think this points to an even greater reality which is to say who is it in the end that makes the church thrive? That makes the church strong and that makes the church grow James says it's not me and you So trying to use the weapons of the world to make the church grow or to make your faith secure isn't going to work. What in the end works is by turning to the one who gave us our faith to begin with. I find myself often frustrated at the situation the church in the modern world feels because of the many ways that the world, not just that it hates us, it's that it's indifferent to us. How many times do I go out and I talk about Christian faith or something and and I find myself thinking, that's a good conversation I just had with you. You seem to be really interested. Never see them, right? I mean, there's many people that I talk to, they're not hostile to Christian faith, and I think, you know what, maybe if I really had a devastating argument, that might bring them in. Or what if I really convicted them and noticed something really bad in their life, and I went, uh, you know, full bore and said, you know, you're really, really quite a sinner. Uh, (laughs) You know, that's how I got Scott to come to church. In all seriousness, though, yeah, that's right. In all seriousness, though, is, is that we feel like somehow it's all dependent on us, don't we? And even if we say, okay, I don't want to be slanderous, and I don't want to be a jerk and follow the ways of the world, especially as a minister of the gospel, it is so tempting for me to believe that everything rides on how clever and how great I can be. Instead of doing what James really points us to, which is to say, well, where in the, in, in the beginning did all of this come from? It came from God himself. One of my professors in seminary used to love saying... Christ alone is the guarantor of the church's existence. What he meant by that is to say, Jesus pours out his love for us and his power for us, and that keeps us around. Because if he stops doing it, we ain't going to be here anymore. How has the church survived so long? I mean, you look at scandals, you look at incompetence, you look at foolishness in the church's life, in the past and today, and you think, the only reason it survived with such bad leadership is it's because there must have been somebody divine pulling the strings, making it continue, because I can't always think of a good reason why people would stick around. It's the grace of God that does it, and I think this is an encouragement for us. Remember, why we are here is because of the love and the grace of God. It's also, I think, where uh, um, James is saying here when he says that we are the first fruit. He says that we would become a kind of first fruits for his creatures, I think what he's saying, too, is to sort of say, like, we're the ones, if you think about what fruit is, fruit comes off the vine, you pick the grapes, you do different things, but in the end, those fruits come because God sends the sun, God sends the rain, and you enjoy these first things and the promise of more things to come because God has been generous. Trust and believe that where our true hope lies is not by the devastating arguments we get in with other people, by simply being the kind of person when anger comes at us to turn it aside with a soft answer, to give a defense that doesn't have to be perfect, but to pray for them and to trust that God will do it as right with the person who's attacked them. But I also said that there's a second thing here. And the second thing is part of the reason I think where where uh, Luther had such a problem with James. But The thing he's talking about here is about how uh, we are to be doers of the word and not just hearers. Let's move on to verse 22. He says, be doers of the word, not merely hearers who deceive themselves. For if any are hearers of the word and not doers, they are like those who look at themselves in a mirror, for they look at themselves, and on going away immediately forget what they're like. For those who look into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and persevere, being not hearers who forget, but doers who act, they will be blessed in their doing. You could easily misconstrue this as sort of saying, you know, you've got to do all these things, otherwise God won't love you, or that somehow uh, you're a person who won't measure up. And in fact, the analogy he uses is, is quite a good one. And helps us, I think, visualize what he's really getting at. Imagine for a moment that you're looking into the mirror. You know, you, uh, you're, you're, uh, maybe at work and you go into the washroom and you check yourself in the mirror there and you notice that there's a big chunk of, uh, spinach, uh, between your, your teeth. Well, why do you, why do you look at the mirror? Because you pull out the floss and say, I gotta floss this thing out because I got a meeting afterwards. Uh, Or you look in the mirror in the morning and you realize, man, I've got some dark, saggy uh, uh, things under my eyes. I need to get a little bit more sleep. And so what do you resolve to do? I'm not going to stay up all night. I'm going to go to bed early, right? Well, what do you do then if you go and look in the mirror and you see that giant chunk of spinach and then you just, eh, whatever, and go off and do your job interview? That's not very smart. That mirror's done no value for you. Or you look at the baggy eyes and then you stay up until 2 o'clock watching Netflix. How has that mirror helped you? I think James giving that understanding is like he's saying, well, you're a person who sits and you hear God speak about the way of life and how Christ has set an example for us and how he laid down his life and God raised him from the dead and he's seated now at the right hand of the Father. A pattern in which through sacrifice, Christ is rewarded and elevated and you look at this and you hear this and then you don't do anything as a result. You're just like the person who sees that mirror who goes into the mirror and does nothing about it, and that mirror has ultimately done you no good whatsoever. Instead, he says, what are we to be? To look into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and persevere not just hearers who forget, but doers who act. What is he talking about the law of liberty? I think what he's saying is to say you listen to what Christ has done, and you are convicted and come to believe that the way that Christ has shown us is in fact the way that brings true liberty and life. That strange little phrase, the law of liberty, is so interesting because I think it tells us that there is, in fact, a kind of freedom that comes in following the path that Jesus showed us. And the freedom that comes is the freedom from self-concern and the freedom from self-interest. As a parent, I see this a lot, and some of you may remember it from childhood or see it from uh, nephews and nieces. One of the most uh, frustrating things as a parent to see again and again is the way that kids they can be wonderful in many ways, can be incredibly petty and selfish in other ways. One of my favorite ways is that when you get into the car and you load the kids in the back, you hear them fighting and you turn around and say, you know, don't make me pull this car over. And then what's the problem all about? Well, she's on my side and you look and she's like got a quarter of an inch of her knee on the side of her sister. And you think, like, so what? Well, she's gotten a little bit, a tiny bit more space than I did. Or you're, you're, you're feeding them lunch and you've got some strawberries that you picked up from the store and you give them all strawberries and one of them always looks around and says, well, why does she have four strawberries and I only have three? <laughs> she would have been absolutely happy if she was by herself eating three strawberries, but as soon as she knew that somebody got one extra strawberry entirely ruined the strawberries she had. Now, adults are a lot more sophisticated about this, but believe me, that dies hard even as you grow up. Doesn't it always look with that jealous eye that somebody has something more? How easy it is, too, when we look at the ways of service that Christ gives to us and say, well, I I could be watching Netflix, or I could be uh, eating a a sandwich right now instead of cutting things up for my kids. What does James say when he says to follow uh, the law of liberty and to do it When he talks about widows and orphans, this is pure and undefiled religion. The kind that pleases God is feeding widows and orphans, those who are in distress. Do you know that there's a kind of pleasure and joy and fulfillment that comes when you sit with a person who is lonely and listen to them for an hour instead of flicking through shows on the television. Instead of saying, why am I not being entertained, you leave saying, if you were able to look into the law of liberty and say, I am serving this person, you leave. But the knowledge you have given a person, a ray of light, when maybe their entire life at the moment feels like it's surrounded by God. That is something you only get when you forget yourself for a while. The self-forgetfulness of the gospel is a true a kind of liberty. Jesus shows us by the way of life, it's not an accident that it's a death, a resurrection, and an ascension. It's not an accident then when Paul, he said in Ephesians, we learned a few weeks ago, that we are seated with Christ in the heavenly places. It's a strange phrase, but I think what he's getting at there is to say that even in life, we find ourselves lifted up and exalted because we are following the way of service Jesus gives. In our own souls, we find our soul full of life and of resurrection power. We find ourselves ascended in a sort of high when we start living a life not just for ourselves, but thinking about other people. James is not saying, oh, faith is an important just work. He's saying, you come to show yourself to God, to the world, that you actually believe what Jesus says when you start doing what he did. Do I believe Jesus and that his way is life-given? Then I will start walking in his way and find that real life comes as a result. So James is not here saying, tsk, tisk, do more work. Instead, I think James is saying, I am challenging you. To live as if you actually believe what Jesus has said. Let's do that today. Let's believe what Jesus says. Start living as Jesus tells us to live and let us take him up in his offer. Following him and denying ourselves and taking up his cross and find that resurrection of our souls and our bodies waits close at hand and living even today, ascended in the highest places, knowing the satisfaction that comes with tending the sheep God has given us to care for. Remember those two things. Don't fight the ways of the world with the ways of the world, but instead trust who is our true protector and guarantor, the Father of light. And secondly, remember, the true faith, life-giving faith, is a faith that is acted out because it shows yourself and the world and your Lord that you actually believe that what he has shown us is the way of life.